0: The Hiding Place is an autobiographical memoir by a lady named Corrie Ten Boom, a deeply religious woman who lived in the Holland city of Harlem during the Nazi occupation of World War II. Compelled by her faith, she defied tyranny to rescue her Jewish neighbors who faced annihilation during the Holocaust. She was ultimately caught and sent to the notorious Ravensbrück death camp, where she witnessed scenes of imaginable cruelty. In the camp was Corrie's faith in the glory of God that sustained her. She discovered that love was a far more powerful force than hate. For God's love was truly unconquerable. Here's a deeply personal excerpt from her story. Quote, It was much later in life at a church service in Munich that I saw him the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there. A room full of men mocking me, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, He came up to me as the church was empty, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. He said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumenthal the need to forgive, kept my hand right at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand but could not. I felt nothing not the slightest warmth, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Today, we're going to study a different story of forgiveness and brokenness. And while Carrie's story is compelling, to say the least, today's story is superior. It's superior in the sense that it's inspired by God's Spirit for us to learn from. It is in the Holy Scriptures. 2,000 years ago, the Corinthians struggled to forgive a repentant sinner. Here in 2023, a main point for us today we must be willing to seek and grant forgiveness in our lives. We must be willing to both seek and grant forgiveness in our lives. You read the scripture. Let me sum up the backstory of the incident that we're reading about today. When Paul learned from his friend Timothy, when Timothy visited Corinth, that there were troubles in the church, Paul quickly made a trip to the Corinthians and it was unscheduled. He was probably thinking that he would quickly fix things. After all, he's the Apostle Paul and be on his way. Unfortunately, disappointingly, his presence was opposed. He was resisted to his face. It seems that there was a leader in the Corinthian church who publicly attacked Paul while the church just sat there and watched and did nothing to defend him. The offender had come under the influence of Paul's opponents. Paul would later call them super apostles. They had come to Corinth after Paul left. They were heretics who denied the truth of Jesus. Reading the letters, it seems that the attacks were against Paul's integrity. Namely, that he was dishonest and double-minded. You remember the change travel plans? They um, disparage his courage. They call him weak and Unimpressive. It's also likely given the amount of material in the later part of the book regarding money in the collection for the poor in Jerusalem that he was charged with misusing these funds for his own needs. In addition to this, in cases like this, you can just probably imagine the criticisms, not so subtle comments about his general life and ministry. That's how the mudslinging is done. Yes, you have lived this as well. In the face of this difficult and unexpected assault and seemingly without the support of the church, Paul was shaken and upset and so he decides to leave Corinth for the time being and in the aftermath of this exchange, Paul writes the letter we don't have a copy of today, the severe letter, the painful letter. Pastor Brian described it last week in the opening verses of chapter 2 and in this letter, Paul rebukes them and calls them to repentance, obviously very directly, he calls it the severe letter and the painful letter. Praise God. God's Word, as always, does its sanctifying work. And Paul relates later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, these words, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, but only for a little while. But as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation with no regrets. But worldly grief just produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. What a beautiful passage. What do we learn here? Praise the Lord, the majority of the Corinthians repented and began to support Paul again. And though it does not exactly say what they did with the offender, it is obvious, it is obvious that the Corinthians put him out of the fellowship of the church. Because in our passage today, Paul is encouraging them to restore him. This seems to be a practice of the early church. It's consistent with a letter uh, that we studied last year, 1 Corinthians, last summer. I'm sure you remember this passage. Chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. You are arrogant. Shouldn't you rather mourn? I've underlined, uh, you probably can't, sorry, that's a little small font. I didn't look at that beforehand, but I'm reading it for you. The parts I've underlined here. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled, he says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, because then you'd have to leave the world. But he says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone like this who bears the name of a brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Underlined, is it not those inside the church whom you should judge? God judges the outsiders. Purge the evil person from among you. In the face of all of, that negative, and all of that negativity, all of that negative news, today's passage should be the most wonderful news. This man has repented of sin. How often does that happen? There's actual repentance of sin by this offending man. But the big problem of today's passage is unexpected. The Corinthians wouldn't forgive him. And they have no desire to do so. And just to contextualize for a second, before we give them a hard time on our holy high horse, let's acknowledge how difficult these concepts are for any church. These are real issues. These issues are part of our everyday lives. They're part of every church life as well. The hesitancy to forgive... The tendency to turn away from those who have caused pain and embarrassment, even if they are repentant, it looms, friends, out in the distance like the iceberg in the pathway of the Titanic. Failure to forgive will put any church out of step with Jesus. He is the gracious Savior. He is the great forgiver. And it will likely be the wound that would bring any church down to disaster. I want to show you three observations this morning that I think come from the text that Paul would want us to see to help us understand the importance of sin, repentance, forgiveness, restoration here in our church family. Uh, I'll my outline up there just for a second so you can see it. We have a three-part outline to help us work through the passage this morning. It's on the screen there for you uh, for a few seconds for you note-takers so we get started here. We will consider, number one, the mutual pain of church sin. Secondly, we'll study the spiritual truths of church discipline. And lastly, I'm going to try to save time for this. It's the best part. Appreciate the protective blessings of church forgiveness. And for the serious note-takers out there, each point has 3 subpoints, so get your, get your stuff out there and leave room for nine bullet points so I don't get in trouble. All right, first point, let's think about the mutual pain of church sin. As I said, there are three points in each passage that Paul would want us to wrestle with there, and um, these are the three truths. Number one, sin always causes pain. Sin always causes pain. Secondly, your pain is my pain. And lastly, sin brings real consequences. I'll be stating those again for you if you didn't get them all yet. Let's first consider the thought that sin always brings pain. Sin always brings pain. The first thing that Paul identifies in our passage this morning is pain. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he says, friends, sin is a crafty and deceptive enemy. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience to God, which leads to righteousness. Jesus said this, The things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these are the things that defile a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, lies, slanders. These are the things which defile a person. The real truth about sin is this. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you'd ever want to pay. Sin brings pain. The eternal weight of sin impacts everyone. And left unchecked, sin will breed more sin and more sin after that. Sin is a liar that promises pleasure, but it is only at God's right hand that there are pleasures that last forevermore. Sin is a liar, and sin always brings pain. Develop the thought next. Secondly, let's think about the idea that your pain is my pain. As we look at the text, the assault inflicted upon Paul was not just a wound for him. He describes it as a wound for the entire church. He says, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. We learn here that Paul had this view of personal pain that related to the whole church, it was interconnected. He's very clear to emphasize that that pain, he says, not to put it too severely. Or to translate that, probably meaning, I don't want to exaggerate this, but this pain that was for me is actually for all of us. Everyone in that church suffered the pain when Paul was abused. You might remember in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul had written, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And later in this same letter, in Second Corinthians, he'll reference the same interconnectedness that we have as believers. He'll say, who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to fall? And I'm not indignant. Can you see this? Paul is communicating the sincere spiritual unity among all of those who are true believers, all of those who name the name of Christ. For Paul, and friends, we should think deeply about this. The church was not a secular club offering trial memberships, just trying to ramp up the membership numbers. It's not an organization who happens to have a catchy tagline, Body of Christ. The church is a community, a family of brothers and sisters with radically interconnected relationships. Relationships that the writer of Hebrews celebrates in chapter 12 using language that is so lofty. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, Friends, the church is not just another earthly organization. The church is God's eternal community based on deeply spiritual connections and relationships. And we don't think about it as clearly as we should. Pastor Kent Hughes wrote what I would call a fairly direct observation about this, being a little sarcastic here, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. He wrote, Paul would never have countenanced the free-riding ecclesiastical hitchhikers of today much less the church consumers who attend one church for the preachings and their children do a second group for the youth group and participate in another church's small groups, people who live without commitment, without accountability, without discipline, and most importantly, without the Lord's table. For Paul, the church was central to Christian existence. He could never conceive of Christians living apart from their local church. He envisioned that Christians would live in such sincere and close relationships that the pain of one would be felt by everyone else. My notes aren't here. Ten years ago, I made, this This is not my notes, ten years ago, I can begin to be compelled by this doctrine to the point that I'm like, I need my best friends in the church. I need my mentors in the church. I need the people that I speak to in the church. This is the hub and core of my earthly life. Now, I know the universal church is bigger than the local church, but this is us. I think the church today needs to take back the seriousness of the doctrine of the church, live out the theological picture of the body of Christ better than we have in the past. We have to repent of our apathy our indifference towards praying for the church, participating in the services and ministries of the church, supporting the ministries and missions of the church with our resources. These are not just options and consumeristic choices. These are Bible imperatives. These are commands. Third thought about this from Paul is that sin's mutual pain is that sin brings real consequences. If you choose to ignore this truth, there are real consequences. I do not have time to discuss the specific nature in totality of sins, devastating curse on humanity as a whole. But the curse is there, and the hurts are real. But today we only have time to look at the consequences of sin on the man in Corinth who opposed Paul, because it's in our text. Look at the words used by Paul. Punishment. Overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This man is described as needing forgiveness. Being without comfort and not sure of experiencing love he's broken alone he's isolated that is the curse of sin in the world men professing to become men professing to be wise becoming fools worshipers exchanging the worship of the eternal god for the idolatry of dead dumb idols Friends, don't believe for a moment that you can play around with sin and not get hurt. James 1, 14 and 15 makes the point so directly. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully done, fully grown, brings forth death. Consider those verbs, lured and enticed. These are hunting and fishing terms in the original language. It all looks good. Everything is going fine. Until, bang! You thought you were enjoying the pleasures of sin. But in reality, you were being catfished, baited, tricked. Tricked into pain, suffering, addiction, and eventually death. It is these truths, the truths of sin, sin's pain, sin's consequences, and it's interconnectedness in the body of Christ that brings us to the second point that paul wants to make the more positive point but friends the good news gets better contrasted with the bad news and paul makes that point clear to us in verses six through eight paul wants us now to look at how sin pain and our fellowship together can be remedied let's study together the truths the spiritual truths of church discipline brief parenthesis here okay just a pause from the text before we move on to our subpoints about the spiritual truths of church discipline, we need to make sure that everyone knows and has a basic understanding of what church discipline is. So let's quickly look at one passage uh, and, um, and, and think about church discipline, and I'll describe the process of church discipline a little bit so we can understand what's occurring in this passage. The primary passage in the Bible about church discipline is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And Matthew records the words of Jesus. I'll read them for you here. For the sake of time, we can only look at this passage, but I want to make the point to you that there are other passages in the New Testament that describe this concept of church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5, we read before, Galatians 6, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 3, and Titus 3 as well. We don't have time to look at them all, but I want you to know this is not just a scriptural one-off or a one-time mention. I want you to know this is, I'm choosing one passage for the sake of time. The next slide summarizes what we might call the steps of church discipline for us to consider. It might surprise you to see self-discipline at the top of the list. But I'm including it to remind ourselves that this is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And we all are always involved in some form of church discipline. We should not fight against this. In fact, Paul told Timothy, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise of the present life and also for the life to come. Parents are told to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Listen to this, friends. Discipline in the Christian's life is a normal and necessary ingredient. We should not fight against this God-given help to godliness. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning on the nuts and bolts of church discipline. My goal for you this morning is not that you would think, okay, we've got to figure out whether church discipline has three steps or four or five. I don't want you focused on specific details like that. Those are important thoughts. I will tell you that as a leadership team and as a pastoral team, when we're in situations like that, we do think very specifically. We are very careful to try to follow the Lord accurately and carefully in situations like that. But this morning... I want to focus on the spiritual truths that are behind the process of church discipline. They reflect to our passage better today. Our passage this morning implies that the discipline process is part of reaffirming our love to this man. And some of you are there thinking and your flesh is lying to you and asking this question. How is a process like church discipline loving? Wouldn't, everything, wouldn't everyone's lives just be better if we were left to do what was right in our own eyes? Well, there was a book there on that previous slide, and I have a quote from it here on our next slide here. And there's four thoughts about how church discipline is loving, just that we put our minds in the right spots. Church discipline is loving because it shows love for the individual, that they might be warned and brought to repentance. You have anyone in your life, you would love to warn and see them repent of something? I do too. It shows love for the church, that weaker sheep might be protected. Do you know that the example we set for one another is powerful and what is allowed teaches is loving. It shows love for the watching world that it might see Christ's transforming power, that we would see people change and grow because of the grace of God. And it shows love for Christ that we as his church might uphold his holy name and obey him. And so when we think of it from our standpoint, it doesn't feel loving at all, but when you think about it through the lens of God's teaching, You see, it's very, very loving. You see, it's because of our sinfulness. We need to be reminded of these simple but profound spiritual realities. They form both the motivation and the processes in any kind of discipline process. So let's look now at the spiritual truths of church discipline. They're up here on the screen for you. They're profound, right? You're either in or you're out. (laughs) Repentance keeps you in. And forgiveness is ideal. I did not go to my thesaurus. Uh, for those three points let's look at the first thought you're either in or you're out they are simple truths but sometimes the simplest truths are the most profound truths and before you check out now and say yes that's obvious listen carefully this might be the most important thing i'm going to say to you today you're either in or you're out i'm trying to summarize the gospel words of jesus to you Jesus said there are only two ways, the narrow way that leads to life or the broad way that leads to destruction. Jesus said you're either a child of your father, the devil, or you're a child of God, the heavenly father. Jesus said you're one of the sheep or you're one of the goats. Jesus said you are lost or you are found, a dead or alive, a friend of God or an enemy of God. Either your sins are forgiven or you remain in your sins. From the beginning, there was only the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. One of the most powerful images uh, that we can see in the Scripture is the difference between light and darkness. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This truth, The truth of Jesus, the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, living a sinless life and teaching the truths of the kingdom of God, is the most important truth that anyone could ever know. This truth, the truth of Jesus, the Son of David, is the most satisfying truth of love and forgiveness that we're all searching for. This truth, The truth of Jesus being punished for our sins, bruised for our wrongdoing, dying as a substitute on on the Roman cross. This is all that matters. This truth, the truth of Jesus, not simply having endured the pain of physical death, but unbelievably, willingly opening himself up to the wrath of God that had to be poured out against the sins of the world, and he drinks the cup of God's wrath until there is no wrath left for us. This Jesus crucified, buried, but not defeated. This Jesus raised back to the dead, raised back from the dead to life, resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit now rules and reigns in heaven and calls us through his word, whosoever believes in me shall be saved. You're either in or you're out. Can I tell you a secret that shouldn't be a secret and God wants you in? We all have physical life, thanks to our human parents. But because of sin, we're all born out, disconnected from God, needing a second birth. This is why Jesus used this metaphor. You must be born again. And I say to you this morning, if you have not yet believed in Jesus, he who believes in the Son. life, But whoever does not believe in the Son does not have life. The wrath of God remains on him. Believe in Jesus today. Come out of darkness into this glorious light. What I've just described to you is the spiritual reality behind the concept of church discipline. And you're asking, what does that have to do with the passage this morning and how does it play out in the life of the man who offended Paul? There is a general relationship between someone's inclusion in a local church and their true spiritual condition. Think about it. This man in 2 Corinthians had been put out. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul told them to purge the evil from among them. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that we read a moment ago, let them be like a Gentile or a tax collector. You're either in or you're out. The the, the apostle John may have said it, in a a winsome way for us. It's really helpful. So in summary, consider the words of John in 1 John 2, 18-20, and look at the prepositions that I've underlined. Children, it's the last hour. And you have heard that any Christ is coming. And even now, many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Those, they, these are the false teachers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they'd been of us, they'd have stayed with us. But they were not of us; they went. I lost my sorry. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they'd have stayed with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. Can you feel the prepositions? But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. John teaches what Jesus does and what Paul does. He connects inclusion and acceptance by a local church family to inclusion in the universal church. And this leads us to our next simple spiritual truth. Repentance keeps you in. Repentance keeps you in. Hey, you say, what's with all this in and out talk? No one can see who's really saved and who's not really saved. Who are you to judge? Now, in fairness, I know the objection. I'm raising it. And there's some truth to that. No, I have no gospel goggles. No one in our church leadership team does. I cannot see true spiritual life for sure. But I think that's why this church test is so simple, so easy. Let's be clear here to, to address that objection. We are all sinners. No one should be, or ever should be disciplined from church membership on the basis of sin, any sin. Yes, some sins seem bigger than others. Yes, sins are more messy, some. Some sins have more earthly consequences than others. Yes, some situations are more difficult to work through. But let's be clear you're only ever disciplined for unrepentance. Unrepentance. Look again at Matthew chapter 18, same passage, but now I've underlined a few important things for you to consider. If your brother sins against you, go tell him your fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, Listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may establish be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's very obvious, you see the failure to listen, to hear, that escalates this process from level to level to level. It is not the sin itself. It's the unrepentance of a person who claims to be a believer but will not hear the admonitions of their church family about their sin. It is that person that needs to be disciplined further and further for their own good. And notice, this is very important, at any point in a process like this from self-discipline, what stops self-discipline? Repentance. What stops discipline between me and a friend? Repentance. If a couple people come, what stops the process? repentance it's always repentance that's desired repentance keeps you in and to say it even more plainly if we were disciplined for our sins who would be here this morning (laughs) there'd be no one here there'd be no preacher there would be no listeners if we were disciplined for our sins none of us would be here but hopefully by the grace of god listen to this expression we live a life of continual repentance if you think repentance is something you did at salvation and you haven't done since, this message is for you. <laughs> Everyday repentance. And Back in our passage this morning, it's clear based on Paul's instructions to the church that repentance has occurred. He says, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you, church, should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul would not be encouraging forgiveness and restoration unless the man had repented. Early in verse 5, Paul, for the sake of this man, minimized his own pain and talked about the pain of the church-wide effect. Now in verses 6-8, through again he talks to the church and says we must forgive the man and restore him to fellowship because of his repentance. And that brings us to our last simple thought. Forgiveness is ideal. This is the goal. Forgiveness is the goal. Restoration is desired. I love Paul's big shepherd's heart here. You know, one of those says something that I didn't even pick up myself, but a commentator helped me. Paul doesn't even use the guy's name. Paul liked to drop names, didn't he? (laughs) He had no trouble with that. He doesn't call him out for all eternity. It's so subtle you could miss it. Identifying this man by name would not have contributed to the desired restoration. The punishment, which was was what was the punishment, extended exclusion from the church. And Paul says, "That's enough. It's over." Paul's fear that the offender may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow imagines the picture of a dreadful ending. Excessive sorrow leads to despair. Excessive sorrow leads to depression. Excessive sorrow leads to suicide. It imagines a dreadful ending because overwhelmed, literally in the Greek expression, is to swallow up. It's an allusion to the book of Numbers in the judgment of Korah when Moses prophesied that the earth would swallow up the rebellious. Paul understood that removal from church fellowship had left the man so drowning in desperate sorrow that he was, being in, he was in danger of being sucked down into the earth in death, despair, and spiritual defeat. And from the other perspective, this poor excluded man It appears he now understands the importance of the local church. To his credit, he now realizes it's tough to live apart from the benefits and blessings of the body of Christ. He feared for his own soul. For Paul, forgiveness was of the highest importance for the sinner and the church. And he concludes the thought by saying, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. It's such a significant summary statement that most people feel it involves him calling for a formal act of the congregation. Reaffirm your love for him. If they put him out, they bring him in. Paul did not merely beg the Corinthians to forgive the sinner. He viewed it as a matter of obedience also. I wish I had another 20 minutes to talk about this particular thought but obedience to god's word he says for this is why i wrote that i might test you and know that you were obedient in everything obedience to god's word demands the hard work of doing church discipline and then the hard work of forgiving what is forgiveness is it necessary is it important there's a simple passage in paul's letter to the ephesians that we all ought to memorize Kyle, give me that same slide again please it's on the screen for you. Let's read it together, shall we? Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. If we're going to forgive the same way that we've forgiven, then we have to understand how we've been forgiven in order to fulfill this command. Five years ago, when I was down with a torn Achilles tendon and blood clots in both lungs, I couldn't do much for myself. My family pitched in and served me, they served me well. You know what I realized during that time? I'm a picky cook. I'm a picky cook. I'm a picky eater. I wanted them to cook just like dad cooks in the kitchen. The only way you can cook like me is to study how I cook. In the same way, you have the only way to forgive like God forgives is to understand how God forgives, so you can forgive like he does. A quick few thoughts about God's forgiveness. Uh, from forgiven to forgiving, not a bad book. A few quotes from this book: We already said we must forgive like God forgives. Forgiveness is based in God's promises. Isaiah forty three twenty five: I will not remember your sins. How does an omniscient God not remember? You ponder that. That'd be a great thought for you uh, this week. The, few, the the next few sentences help explain how that plays out. It's a promise. I will not bring these matters up to you or others in the future. I will bury this offense and not exhume the bones to beat you over the head with them. (laughs) One man said every time to a counselor, every time my wife gets upset, she becomes historical. He said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, no, I mean historical. (laughs) Historical. I'll never use these sins against you. Forgiveness is a financial term. It's canceling a debt. Ephesians 4.32 says forgiving one another. That means it should be the normal practice of our life to seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness. Forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. This should be the normal practice of our lives to grant forgiveness to others. It's necessary. We all sin. We all offend people around us. Friction builds up in marriages and families and churches. It's sinners living together. Friction builds up, heat occurs, and without forgiveness, disaster will come. In 1984, I was, uh, spent $5,770 on a Ford Mustang. And um, I didn't know what an oil change was. And it wasn't too long after I bought the Ford Mustang that I bought a new engine. Okay? Thank you, Dad, if you're watching this morning, for all the help with that. Forgiveness is the motor oil of humanity that keeps us from exploding. There's going to be heat and friction. We don't want our cars destroyed by lack of care, and we don't want our churches destroyed by lack of forgiveness either. Forgiveness is a great blessing just by itself. But the truth is, forgiveness, now final thought, is the pathway to additional blessings in our church family as well. Let's look at the protective blessings of church forgiveness in these last few verses. The first blessing of church forgiveness is the assurance of salvation you receive from being a part of your church family. The assurance of salvation. Paul describes them as being obedient in everything. This is going to go pretty quickly, but I wish I had more time. This is, it says 16 seconds. I'm keeping you like three minutes over, but I'm on my last page. Have you ever considered what it means that you're in, not just in Christ, but that you're in here at Heather Hills? One of the things it means that's so important is that we agree with you that you're one of God's children. So, what does that mean if we put you out? Again, I have no gospel goggles and I have no authority in your eternal destiny. However, if anything ever came to that moment, we would be clearly saying at that moment, you're not living in a way that allows us to agree with you about your profession of faith. You're not acting like a believer. We're not going to treat you like a believer. So the wonderful contrast is, as a member here, as a regular attender, as a person fellowshipping with Heather Hills, you have many brothers and sisters that will get to know you and agree with you and testify with you that your faith is sincere and genuine. We all have doubts. We all struggle with this. But it's not just you on your own. You have the validation of others who have the same spirit. In fact, Matthew 18 goes on to say, I don't have it on the screen here, but in the same passage we read twice, this is what Jesus goes on to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Friends, these are not just two random people praying about random things. <laughs> two or three, two, two or three. In the con- these are people considering the issue of whether people are in or out. I encourage you, enjoy the blessing, the protective blessing of the assurance of your salvation affirmed by your covenant with friends and brothers here at Heather Hills. This is important. Number two, we see the presence of Christ. Paul says, if I've done any of this, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ. How beautiful to have the presence of Christ. What does it mean though? Back to Matthew chapter 18. I think he's referencing what Jesus said in the next verse. You know what Jesus said in the next verse? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Jesus promises the blessing of his presence when we are together dealing with sin, repentance, and forgiveness. Why would that be needed? Well, these matters are hard. Now, once again, in the context, I have, to have a little joke with you here. These aren't just two or three random people. I hate to say this, but this verse is not a defense against you feeling bad because there are a low number of people in attendance at a prayer meeting. You know... Well, what the Bible says, there's only a few of us here, but where two or three are gathering is his name. I, I get that, And but God is already there. These are not two or three random people in the context. There are very specific two or three people in the context. Enjoy this blessing, friends. If you ever have to be a part of a process like this, oh, I just said it wrong. You're always in a process like this. Self-discipline, husband-wife relationships, parent-child relationships, brother sister relationships discipline is just a part of life know this God said where two or three are gathered I am with you if you will love one another like that what a great God that lives in us that we could worship him and love one another that way what a blessing and lastly protection from Satan that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes the last blessing is the protection from satan there is a real spiritual battle in the cosmos and we are in the crosshairs when israel was attacked of course i think should brian go i also thought oh yeah i was there a year ago i was on a bus right i was on the tour bus that could have been me and my wife and my kids and my vigilance goes up a little bit for a minute and friends spiritually we need to have that kind of vigilance because this passage says that satan is scheming against us He is plotting our downfall. Praise the Lord. The scripture instructs us about his schemes. And Paul will make this point again in chapter 11. He will write this. I'm afraid. He's writing to the same people. Same letter. I'm afraid that in the same way the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Friends, Satan may come as a roaring lion looking to devour you openly. Satan might come disguised as an angel of light. Satan may even come in the voice of someone like the Apostle Peter that Jesus had to say, get behind me. But I can tell you this, how do you recognize Satan? However Satan comes, whenever he comes, he comes to deny Christ. It's to pollute and dilute Christ. How do you fight Satan's schemes? You retain a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's the starting point. Why is that true? Because it's all connected to Jesus and Jesus himself said, I'll build my church. That's you and me. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Just a couple of thoughts in closing here as I invite the praise team back to the platform for our closing song. There's so much to take away here and I feel like I've been applying this text all the way through. So, but I do want to make two points and then have us do a quick closing exercise together as they're coming. Number one, boy, if you're out, God has a plan where you don't have to continually compete for your place in the world. Thank you, Kyle. I didn't mark those. I apologize. God has a plan where you don't have to continually compete for your place in the world. All you have to do is repent and believe in Jesus for forgiveness. What a sweet and restful blessing. In Christ and in church. In one sense, they're exactly the same. In Christ, in the church, there is rest and blessing. You don't have to keep fighting. You are here. We love you. We love one another. God loves you. So simple, so profound. Number two, everybody sins. Next slide, Kyle. Everybody sins. But the hypocrisy of silently denying our sinfulness how do you silently deny your sinfulness? By never repenting, by never expressing and asking and granting forgiveness. You silently deny your sinfulness. It leads to self-deception and isolation. You should be an everyday repenter. You could find the joy of the Lord in the fellowship of the saints, an everyday repenter. With that in mind, if you'll stand with me uh, in closing, think about this question. When was the last time you said these words? I'm sorry. I did what was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. When was the last time those words came out of your mouth? Husbands and wives, has it really been that la- has it really been that long since you sinned against one another? Has it been that long? I doubt it. you're sinners. I'm sinner. <laughs> Parents and kids. Has it really been that long that those words escaped your mouth? It shouldn't be that long. So let's stand and practice together. Kyle, I need that slide back. Let's just. Let's just hear these words in our mouths, shall we? We're not directing them at anybody in particular. I'm sorry. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. See, that wasn't so hard. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God bless you all. Amen.